We've seen in John chapter 4 that Jesus tells the woman at the well that what the Father longs for are his true worshipers, those that worship him in spirit and in truth. We've been looking at it from the point of view of what does God, what does God desire? When we come here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or whenever we come together, and I know we all have our private times or should have your private times of worship, your private times of prayer, your private times of study, but more and more I become aware of how much the Bible talks in terms of us coming together. You read the, the epistles, Paul's letters and the other letters, especially Paul's letters, Paul talks about what you are to receive and what God wants to do for you and who you are. But if you look at those in the Greek language, most of those yous, Y-O-U's, are plural. He's talking about doing things together. An interesting study to look up how many times the Bible talks about doing things one another. Because God's concept of us is not a bunch of individuals, although He loves us individually. It's the body of Christ together. And if we ever need to come together, it's in this time in which we live now. And that's going to be critical for what God wants to do because He's only going to do it through unity. If you look through the book of Acts, you find out they re- God responded when they came together of one accord, when they prayed of one accord. That's when God moved, when God did that. That's true not just with our relationship with God. It's true in families. It's true in your body. If, there's, if your different parts of your body are... F- there's some diseases where ter- certain parts of your body turns on others, and that's called disease. That's not good. And that becomes destructive or certainly limits your ability to perform. But that's true in the body of Christ also when we're not functioning together, not just fighting with each one another, but not functioning together, when we're not, we're pulling together for the same purpose, then we've got parts of his body going in different directions, and this is literally how God sees us as the body of Christ. And so it is important, the corporate worship, the corporate prayer, the corporate things that we do together, corporate being when we come together to do that, there's greater power when that, but also it satisfies God's heart more. And so we've been looking in John chapter 4, and we've seen that Jesus, Jesus came to, to, uh, to this well and, and spoke with this woman who was coming there for her everyday affairs and didn't realize that she was going to meet with God that day. And we've been talking about it from the point of view that when we come here on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever we come together, we're actually coming to meet with God. God's coming with that expectation. And so we've been looking at part of this discussion that Jesus had with the woman at the well because he says to her when she ta- starts talking about worship, she says to him, you know, where's the right place to worship? And Jesus said, the hour's coming and now is when true worshipers will worship not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. And then the phrase we're looking at is he goes on and says, for such my father desires or longs. So there's a side to this that we experience or want to experience on a Sunday morning or whenever we come together that's God's longing, God's desire. We're not just coming together to fulfill some obligation and God's just somewhere in heaven looking down and checking off the great attendance sheet and says, well, you made it today. And we give you extra credit because you made it on a Sunday, day, Sunday so you get, a, you get a gold star today. They may have done that in your school where you grow up. They may have done that in your home. But that's not why we don't come here to fulfill an obligation. We come here because we need Him and He needs us. We come here to grow in our relationship with one another, to grow in our relationship with God and to be strengthened and encouraged because there's something God has for us to do and that is not primarily here, it's out there. But this is where we are equipped to do that. So that's what we've been looking at. So we've gone back and begun to look at, all right, how does God... The Bible shows us this desire of God 
all the way starting in the book of Genesis and all the way through. We went back and saw in the book of Genesis in the very beginning that when God made that first man and that first woman, woman, He did it for the purpose of doing just that, of having open communion with Him, fellowship with Him, being with them, walking with them, talking with them, sharing with them and blessing them and taking care of them. And then sin comes in and it separates them. That when, when in the garden, when God created this, that there was no barrier between them. God could come in his, all of his glory and stand with them because they stood there in his glory also. And there was nothing to separate them. There was nothing to fear. But the moment they took things into their own hands in chapter 3, the moment they disobeyed him and asserted themselves, their own separate identity, that all changed and they fell They fell, and were separated from God and now God couldn't come physically into their presence. He couldn't go and do for them what he wanted to do because of the sin in their life they would have died. The judgment of sin. We've gone all over that. I'm not going to go back over that again. So then we began to trace God's effort because everything in the Bible from that point all the way through the end of the book of Revelation is God's effort to restore back that desire that's in his heart all along. That desire is in his heart this morning. No matter as long as two or more of us are gathered here in His name, Jesus has promised to be here with us, not just in us, but with us. So we've looked at how God chose a man. He wanted to say, well, I'm going to have, I want to show the world what, what this is like, I'm like and my desire by having a special relationship with a special group of people. But instead of choosing people that already were on the face of this earth, He decided to form a people for Himself. And he did it in such a way that, that it clearly it was God and only God because he chose a man, Abram. And he chose a man that was a, was a pagan, a moon worshiper. And he said this, a man that was too old to have children and his wife was barren. And God chooses this couple to be the beginning of a new race of people he's going to have a relationship with. Why? Because it has to all come from him. It has to come by, by his fulfilling his promise and all by his power and his ability. Because God wants it known that He's the source of all of this and not the effort of any man himself. So God does, as we've traced it through, that people ends up in Egypt because of a famine. They overstay their need to be there and they find themselves in bondage and God delivers them out of bondage by sending a man, Moses, to deliver them. And now we've been studying over the last few weeks once God has His people out into this wilderness in order to get them to the promised land, which is Palestine, which is where He wants to get them. He has them in this place. He brings, tells Moses to bring them to the base of a mountain. And in Exodus 19, God comes down on the mountain to meet with His people. Then God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle, and that's what we've been studying. And we're not going to go back over that again. Uh, you, can look, you can get those CDs and, 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 and uh, study that out. And now what we're going to do is the next phase of this is to see God's next step because the next step is going to be that God has Solomon build a temple for him and God comes to reside in the temple among his people. But I was studying this this week and I realized there's a period between the tabernacle where we ended last week with the glory of the, of the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the high priest coming in that and we talked about how that inner room was lit only by the light of God's presence in there and the glory that was in there and how the power of God and the holiness of God. And that's where we ended last time and, and to just jump from that to, the, to Solomon's temple I realized there's a whole series of events that happen 
between where we ended last time with the establishment and we, where we ended actually was when they consecrated this, set everything up, and the, and the glory of God came down into that holy of holies to, 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 uh, from above the, the, the wings of those cherubim on the mercy seat and the pillar of fire at night and the cloud of, by day went up through the ceiling of that tabernacle and, and was the center of that entire camp. So God was in the middle of his people in a limited form, but he was there. That was his desire. Because we saw in the beginning, he told Moses, he said, my purpose is that I may dwell among my people, that you may build a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among my people. But I realized that there's a, long, there's a period of time between what we studied last week and when the Temple of Solomon is consecrated we need to look at that because it's very interesting. We're going to spend today looking at that and kind of walking through that period of time because I think we can learn some things about this. So what happens, of course, is, is they come to the edge of the promised land, the first generation does. They send the spies in. The spies come back and said, you know, ten of the spies says, everything God said about this is true, but there's obstacles, there's enemies, there's kingdoms in the land, there's giants in the land, and we can't do what God's told us to do. We saw that God therefore said, you know, all right, you're going to stay in this wilderness for 40 years until that generation that rejected my plan for them dies off, and the generation that's born in the wilderness is the generation I'm going to wait in. And there were two, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, who voted to go in because they believed God. As God's testimony in Numbers 14 is that there was a different spirit about them. And, but notice, and this is an interesting sidelight, that where the majority rebelled against God, these two men that were, had, a, had, a, had a faith in God to go in, they still suffered. In fact, the whole next generation suffered because their fathers refused to do what God told them to do. So now we come... Second, 40 years later, we're ready to enter the promised land. Moses has now been told he's not going to lead them in because he disobeyed God. And Joshua has been chosen to lead them in. We come to the edge of the promised land. And let's going to go to Joshua chapter 3. Father, as we turn to your word right now, we ask you to open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the hope of your calling for our life. You would, we would see what it is you are trying to tell us. Not just see with our mind, Father, but see and desire with our heart. Create in us a hunger and a desire, Lord, a thirst for you and for your presence. And for the grace to do that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, Joshua chapter 3, the children of Israel have now come to the edge of the promised land. And we're going to look at the role of the Ark of the Covenant has here. You understand, we talked about this before, that remember with the different articles that were being built, that most of them had poles on them. And the reason for that is that the whole, the whole structure of the tabernacle came apart and was portable because they would be in a camp. They may have been there for a month. They may be for six months. They may be for the year. But suddenly that cloud would begin to move out of the camp and go in front of them. And that was their signal to, to take everything apart, get it ready, because they were going, the camp was going to move. If you look in the book of Numbers, you'll find in the beginning, God gives them an order in which they're to march when, when he's leading them. And it gives them an order where they're, where they're to camp. That's another interesting sidelight because that's a great example of being led by the Spirit because in there there's the simplicity of how the children of Israel were led by God through the wilderness. And we have this image that when God's, the Spirit of God's leading us, we just you know do whatever it is that comes to us. 
But isn't it interesting when, the, when God was leading them, he actually told them the order in which to march. He told them where to live. God actually told them what, how to get in line. I think of kindergartners sometimes. We have our kindergartners, when, when they're going to lunch, they get all lined up and they're in an order. You know, if they're not in the right order, because there's one that's assigned to be the front one. Then, then they have to be re- rearranged and put in order. And we don't realize that God has the right to tell us what order we're to march in. He has the order, right to tell us what your role is in his body. He has the right to do that because he's God. Amen? Amen. I'm going to make sure we're all in agreement on that. All right. So what happens here in Joshua chapter 3 is that they're ready to cross over into the promised land. And we're going to pick up in verse 1. Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from the Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord our God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. And there shall be a space between you and it of about 2,000 cubits. That's about, I think, three miles. This is a large distance. Excuse me, about 1,000 yards. I'm sorry. And do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you're to go, for you've not passed this way before. And then Joshua sanctifies the people. Then the instructions are that the priests are to carry the ark into the river and stand in the river. And when they do this, the river is going to part. It's going to wall up north of there, and they're going to be able to walk through on dry land. Now remember when they crossed the Red Sea, all Moses had to do was hold his rod out and God parted it. Now he doesn't say hold a rod out, he says you're to walk into it carrying the ark. So why is it different now? Because God's requiring a greater measure of faith. They've now seen God's miracles. They've seen God provide for them food every day, dropping out of heaven, coming out of heaven. They've seen God bring water out of a rock. They've seen God defeat their enemies. And now God's expecting more of them. And when, 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 when what faith requires us to do is not just believe what God says, but then act on what God says. So the acting for the first crossing of the Red Sea was simply for Moses to act enough to hold out the rod and declare that they're going to be able to part. But now God's requiring more. He's requiring the priest to take the ark and to literally walk into the, into the Jordan River while it's still flowing. But if they would do that, then God's promise that he would honor his word and he would wall the sea up. And of course, that's what happens. So I wanted you to see that the ark was instrumental in their their being able to cross because it represents the presence of God. In all we're going to look at, it represents the presence of God. So the, the ark is what they walk into the Jordan River. It's opened up and they cross through and come across on dry land. Now let's go to chapter 6. Because the first problem they run into is there's a walled city named Jericho. An interesting lesson here. Joshua doesn't know what to do. The first thing he does is this generation that's come into the promised land now were not circumcised in the wilderness. So the first thing he has to do is to circumcise them. Why? To get back into obedience under the Abrahamic covenant. And, and, and it says in chapter 5, in verse 9, that when he did that, their sin, their reproach was rolled away from them. And now Joshua's pondering what to do, and he comes out by the camp, outside the camp, and an, and an angel appears to him. And the angel says to him, See, this is chapter 1 now, chapter 6, verse 1. 
Jericho was securely tied up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Isn't that interesting? When he looked out there, it's still a walled city. The walls of the city were so wide, the archaeologists tell us, they used to run chariot races on the top of it, probably like six chariots wide. So it's a huge walled city. And, and the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, See, I have given the city into your hand. Well, when he opened his eyes, the city was still there. The walls were still there. Why? was He was telling him to see with the eyes of faith, not with his natural eyes. To see what God is. You see, God sees these things differently. Than we. He sees what He's ordained to do. He sees what His Word says as coming true. Then He asks us to, asks, expects us to agree with Him and then begin to say the same thing with Him. I had to grow in this because, you know, I was raised like most of us were, you, you believe what you see. But God works the other way around. If you believe it, then you will see it. Romans 4, I think it's around verse 18 or 19, says, Abraham believed in order that he might become. The order was Abraham had to believe God's promise before that promise became a reality to him. And that's true with everything of God. You've got to believe first and act on that belief, and then it becomes. And that's what God was showing, that's what happens here. And then what God tells him to do is, here's my instructions. And I don't know if they teach this at the War College, but this worked there. God told them to take the ark and to march around the city once each day for six days. And they were to put their soldiers in front and their, their worship team in front and march around carrying the ark. And at the end of the day, they come back and they would go back to camp. And Joshua's instructions while you're in the camp, don't open your mouth. Close your mouth. Don't say anything. The next day, they were to do this for six days. On the seventh day, they were to march around it seven times. And when they'd done that, they were going to hear a ram's horn. And then they were to give a shout. And when they did that, when they did what God told them to do, the walls fell down. Now, I've read some archaeological uh, reports that say when it fell down, they didn't fall down out, they fell down straight into the ground. I kind of look at it this way, that when they did what God said, God took His heavenly foot and went, <laughs> and the walls came straight down. All right. But I want you to see the role of the ark in that. It represented the presence of God. The people, when, when they sent the spies in the second time, they came back and they, they, they visited Rahab, who lived in Jericho. And she said, look, we don't understand why you didn't come in 39 years ago. Because you have the ark of the covenant. God's presence is with you. So the pagans, the, the unbelievers, had more faith in God's presence with them than they did themselves. All right, now... Now what happens after they come in and they eventually conquer 31 different kingdoms in Israel, what's now Israel? The ark is taken to a city called Shiloh, which becomes kind of the center of worship. I discovered in my study, but the rest of the tabernacle is taken to Gibeon, which is another town. Later the ark is moved from Shiloh to a town called Nob. Now go with me over to 1 Samuel. We don't hear a lot about it, but we're going to see a big change. 1 Samuel. Chapter 
chapter 2. Now, uh, don't turn there, but the last verse of Judges, because what happens after Joshua dies, they go through a period where they're ruled not by a single individual like Moses or Joshua, but by a series of people that are judges that kind of performed a role like as a leader. And one of the recurring themes through the book of, of Judges is the people did what was right in their own sight. Sounds like today, doesn't it? And the last verse of the book of Judges, which sets up what we're going to talk about, says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own sight. So as we open the book of Samuel, there is no, there is no ruler. There is no Moses. There is no Joshua. What's happened is there's a young boy named Samuel who is brought to the then high priest, Eli. Eli is the high priest as we open this up. He is Moses' he's Aaron's who was the first high priest. He is Aaron's grandson. And times have changed. He has sons that he has not disciplined correctly. He has sons that, <clears throat> whatever his efforts were, they have not grown up to respect God. And as we look in 1 Samuel, we're gonna, this is important for what we're going to see happens. 1 Samuel 12. Now the sons of Eli, who was the high priest, were corrupt, and they did not know God. So Eli, who did know God, has not raised his sons to know God. And the priest's custom of that day was that any man would offer a sacrifice and the... Well, I'm going to summarize this for you. What would happen is they would bring the offerings to the priest, as we've talked about before. Some of them would be boiled, and then they would be either given to as the priest's portion, because the priests were given a portion of that. Some of it was burned without the fat and different types of things. They were given a three-pronged fork which was a stick, like a trident. And they, with that, they could pull out their portion. But what his sons were doing is they were taking a portion, they were taking the allotted portion, but they were also taking a portion of it before it ever got in there. So they were skimming from the offering, plus taking their own share. That's not all they were doing. Verse 17 says, and therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But then Samuel ministered to the Lord. Now verse 22. Now Eli was very old and heard everything his sons did in Israel, and how they were lying with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle at the meeting. Not only were they skimming from the offering, there was, there was rampant sexual sin taking place at the doorway of where the ark was being kept. So he tries to correct them there. It has no effect. God sends a man to speak to Eli. And he says in verse 28, Did I not choose... Talking about verse 27 talks about... Let's go back there. And the man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord God, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? In other words, talking about his grandfather, Aaron. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer my altar, burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? Did I not choose your grandfather, Aaron, to represent the people before me and to perform these things? I chose him. 
And did I not give to the house of your father all the offering of the children of Israel made by fire? In other words, did I not provide food for your father and for your grandfather and for your house? Look at verse 29. Why do you kick against my sacrifice and my offering that I've commanded in my dwelling place? And honor your, look at this, and honor your sons more than me. You've not trained your sons. You have put your sons in a place of greater importance than you have in honoring me. And you honor your sons more than me to make yourself fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel of my people. You understand that your tithes and offerings belong to the Lord. They physically go through here, but they belong to the Lord. That's who you're giving to. And that gives us a tremendous responsibility for how we handle those. Our responsibility is to Him. Therefore the Lord, a God of Israel, said, I did indeed choose that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But, but now the Lord says, Far be it from me that those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And then he basically says, the days are coming when your priesthood will be taken away from you. Now look over, look over at chapter 3. And the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. So this Eli, Samuel, of course, is Hannah's son that she believed him, God for, and said, if you give me a son, I'll take my first son and I will dedicate him. So when he was weaned, he was brought to Eli and left to Eli to be trained, and he becomes the next prophet of God. He becomes the next leader of God. And there's this contrast between this young boy, Samuel, who loves the Lord, whose heart's for the Lord, because that's how his parents trained him, and the high priest Eli, whose sons are committing all kinds of debauchery in the house of God, on the doorway of God, and skimming money from the offering and have now cost their father his priesthood. Look at the times. I want to go through this because I want you to understand the climate, the spiritual climate. It's different than it was when we left off last week in the wilderness when the tabernacle was consecrated and God's presence came down. Presence came down. And the boy Samuel ministered, verse 1, chapter 3, before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. They didn't hear from God very much. God's presence, although the ark was in Shiloh, God's presence was no longer with it. It's an important lesson. That's why we're taking this time this morning to go through this. Because what happened is, when they started out, God gave them the, the ark, instructed them to build the ark. And the ark was known as the presence of the Lord. And God's presence was on there as long as their heart was to seek His presence. What happens is, gradually they began to take their focus off of the presence of God and began to put their trust in the ark that God had given them. And whenever we put our trusts in the things that God has given to us to help us to know Him, His presence fades. It's so critical, and this is such an important part of worship, that what we're after is His heart. What we're after is God, not the things God does for us. Pastor Sam used to have an expression. 
He said we need to have, be seeking His face, not His hands. His hands represent what He does for us. His face represents who He is. Psalm 103, and you've heard me quote this before, says that the, Moses knew God's ways. He knew Him. The children of Israel only knew God's acts. They knew His deeds. And part of my concern is we have a church in this generation, especially in this nation, that's been trained to seek after and to desire and to believe God for His acts and what God can do. But we've stopped seeking the God of those acts. And Pastor Sam's expression is, if you, look, if you get close to His face, you're close to His hands. So that's what was going on here. So this was a time when people were doing what they wanted to do. There was a time when God's presence was not there. Well, we may look at it later on, but you get over into the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira simply lie about their offering and drop dead in church. And yet these sons of the priests are doing that in the doorway and nothing happens? Why? Because God's presence, His holiness wasn't there because they had set their hearts on other things than on their God. Imagine, God gave them this tabernacle. He gave them this ark. He designed it for them. He gave them the materials. And He said, if you do this, then I will, I will come down because this is my heart. And I will dwell among you and I will interact with you and I will protect you and provide you and guide them. And He did that through the wilderness. And they had all the victories and the success and the provisions. And they forgot about the God, the God Himself who had provided that. And this is what God's calling us back to. To satisfy the desire of His heart, which is for us to desire Him, not just what He can do for us. All right, let's move on. Let's go to chapter 4 now. And I, I went through that background so that you can understand what's going to happen now. Right before it talks about Samuel now grew and the Lord was with him and none of his words fell from the ground. In other words, God honored every word that Samuel spoke. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now if we're in chapter 4 now, verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped behind Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. What happens is there's a, the Philistines line up in battle array. And so the, 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 the Israelites come out. And in their first battle, the Israelites get whooped. And thousands die on that day. And they say, oh, we figured out the problem. We forgot to take the ark out to battle with us because we remember in Jericho when the ark was taken around the city that the walls fell down. So let's go send somebody back. Go get the ark. So that's what they do. Verse 4, the people sent to Shiloh. They bring there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Of course, the problem was he wasn't dwelling between the cherubim then. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark, verse 5, uh, came down to the camp, all of Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. So what happens is now the Ark's there. They're full of excitement. They're full of confidence because the Ark's there. And they're shouting because they now know they've got the victory. The Philistines see that the Ark's been drawn and they panic. 
So they have to have a huddle together and encourage one another. That's okay. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. Because that's basically what they say towards the end of this, the middle of this chapter. Verse 9, be strong and conduct yourself like men, you Philistines. Or else you're going to become servants of these Hebrews. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel defeated and every man fled to his tent and there was a great slaughter there fell in Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. Wow! Look at verse 11, and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. How can that happen? How can the ark? That was the very thing that God used for His presence. The ark that when they walked into the Jordan River, it parted. That when they marched around with this ark around Jericho and did what God said, walls just fell down. They didn't have to fight anybody. The walls just fell down. Their enemies were destroyed. And now... Not only are their enemies defeating them and they're panicked and running back into their houses, but the ark's been captured by these uncircumcised Philistines. I spent this time to show you the atmosphere of why that could happen. It wasn't the ark itself. It was the hard attitude towards God that brought the power of God and the presence of God. When that hard attitude and when there, was no, when there was no commitment to Him to live His ways and to please Him, God withdrew. And all they had was a gold-covered box with a gold cover on it with two angels. There are a lot of churches like that today. They have the relics of the things of God, but the presence of God is not there. And we have to be careful that although we may not have statues and relics that are sitting around in our church that we worship, we have things like that that we worship. And as long as our heart is not here seeking Him, then His presence can't come because that's what satisfies His heart and that's what He's longing for. Well, there's good news. The result, of course, was the presence. The ark is taken over. And what happens is Eli's sons are killed in battle. The news comes back to him. He is old. He can't see very well. And he's so fat that he falls over backwards and breaks his neck and dies. The word goes now to one of his son's wives, Phineas. I think it's Phineas. Yeah. The daughter-in-law, Phineas, who was pregnant, and she now hears that her husband... Her brother-in-law and her father-in-law have all died in one day. And she goes into labor and brings forth a son. And she gives the name to that son of Ichabod. And the name Ichabod means the glory of the Lord has departed. And that's what it says in verse 31. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So the Philistines say, All right, we got it. Now we're going to have great victory. So they brought it down to Ekron, one of their cities. Set it up in there. They put it by the temple of Dagon. Dagon was the, the senior god that they worshipped. He was considered to be Belial's father. And he, was, uh, his, his, he had hands and a face, a human hands and a human face design. 
and he had an upper body of a man and the lower body of a fish because he was believed to come out of the water. And there's this huge statue of him. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the, their temple with Dagon and they go to bed at night and they get up in the morning and the statue of Dagon has fallen on its face. So they prop it back up again and they go to bed that night and they get up the next morning and it's fallen over again and this time its head's fallen off and its hands are broken off. And they realize, oops. We've seen who the greater power's with. So they said, I think we're going to send the ark, we're going to bless our brothers in Gath, which is another city where Goliath came from. So they send the ark over to Gath. You're blessed, my brothers. And they begin to notice boils start breaking out and tumors start breaking out in their body and most scholars believe a plague broke out. So after only a few months, they say, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't the great blessing we thought it was. We're going to send it back to Israel. So they, what they do is they build a new cart. They had enough sense to do that. And they put the ark on, a, on this cart and they take two... Two, uh, 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 two cows that, that have never milked and they put it on the road to Israel and they send spies to follow it and they're trying to decide whether God has really caused this because of the ark being taken into their, into their captivity or whether it was just a coincidence. So what they decide, they've set it up because if you've got two nursing cows whose babies are still back there, they're not going to just walk off. They're going to come back around to where their babies are. And they put them on and they follow them and they take a straight course over to Beth Shemesh. We're now in chapter 6. And they realize... Oh, oh by the way, they, they, made, they made golden tumors... And golden rats, so that's why we tend to, they tend to think that there may have been some kind of plague that broke out. And they give those as an offering in a gold box, along with returning the ark, to appease God. So they had more faith in the ark than the Israelites did. And so it arrives out in a field outside of Beth Shemesh, and they realize what's coming back. So they take the, the ark off, they bring Levites out, because that's the only way you could do it, the tribe of Levi. They take the ark off the cart, they break the wood up, they set up a bonfire, and they slaughter the cows as an offering to God. All right? Because the ark has come back. Chapter 6, verse 20. The men of Bethshemah said, Who is able to stand before the Holy Lord of God, and to whom shall we go up from us? So they sent messengers into the city, Kirath Shirath, and the, Philistine, the Philistines have brought back the ark. So the, they come down to bring it into the city. All right. Okay. Now, so now it's in this city for a period of time. Okay, we're going to now go over to 1 Chronicles 13, because Chronicles kind of mirrors this, but there's a little more in it. So it remains in this city. The people now cry out for a king. God selects Saul. Saul becomes a king. 
For 40 years, Saul reigns. And you know the story of Saul. We talked a little bit about it, I think, on Wednesday night. Saul rebels against God. God takes his, his anointing away from him and gives it to a young boy named David. Saul doesn't like that, so Saul persecutes David. And then finally Saul dies in battle along with his son Jonathan. And the people from Hebron come and make David king for the southern part of Israel, which is Judah and Benjamin in Jerusalem. And then after a few years, David becomes king of all of Jerusalem, of all of, Ju- of Israel. And now that's what we're going to pick up. So David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and every leader. And David said to all the assembly, if it seems good to you, and if it's of the Lord our God, let us send men out brethren left in the land of Israel with them to the priests of the Levites who are in the cities and gather their commons that we may gather together and let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we've not inquired of it since the days of Saul. So one of the first things David wants to do is to bring the ark into Jerusalem, which by now he's captured. It was called a Jebusite city. David's come in, he's conquered the Jebusites, and on the mound there, he builds what's called, what used to be Jebusite, uh, he builds what's called the city of David. And now he wants the ark. Once he's established everything safe, the first thing he wants to do is to go get the ark and to bring it in. So that's what he's doing here. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired. Verse 4. Then all the assembly said that they would do what was right in the eyes of all the people. And David gathered all of Israel together from, Shire, from Egypt as far as way up north, and they went to get the ark from kirith Jerum. And David and all of Israel went up to kirith Jerum that belonged to Judah to bring from there the ark of the Lord which dwells between the cherub where his name is proclaimed. And they carried the ark on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ohio, not Ohio, Ohio, drove the cart. They were sons of Abinadab. Abinadab is the man whose house this, the, 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 the uh, ark was kept in. And David and all of Israel played music before the Lord with all their might, singing with harps and stringed instruments and tambourines. And when they came to children's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark for the oxen stumbled. So what's happened is they're coming in with this entourage in front of them playing all this music. And what happens is the, the ark, the, the, the oxen balk. And when they do, the, the ark begins to slide off. And Uzzah and his brother are walking along with it as an, out of instinct to keep the ark from falling. Uzzah reaches out to catch the ark and to push it back on. Now that seems like the good and proper thing to do, except he drops dead on the spot. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. He struck him because he put his hand on the ark and he died there before the Lord. Verse 11, And David becomes angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. David's mad at God because he thinks he's doing what's right. He thinks he's doing things with the right intentions. His intentions are right, but he's not following what the law required. So David was afraid that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obadiah the Gittite. And the ark of the covenant remained with the family of Obadiah in his house for three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obadiah. David goes now and pouts back in Jerusalem. God 
makes a new covenant with David and makes a promise that his house will reign over Israel forever. So after these months, verse chapter 15 now, David built houses for himself in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Now what I've discovered in studying this out is that the rest of the, the, rest of the tabernacle, we've already mentioned, was in Gibeon. The, 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 the brazen altar, the laver, and all the rest of it. But this is all focused around the ark, the table of the presence. That's all in Gibeon. But the ark is what the issue is to everybody. So now David is, gonna, is now recovered because God has renewed his covenant with him. David is prepared to go now bring the ark up. And he's made a tent for him, for the ark. And this will be known as the tabernacle of David, whereas the other was the tabernacle of Moses. Then David said, Not one man shall carry the ark, but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the, God, to carry the ark of God and to minister before him. Here's why Uzzah died. Back in our studies, I told you that God ordained only the tribe of Levi to take care of the, the articles of the tabernacle. And out of that tribe, God assigned, there were three sons of of Aaron, God of Levi, God assigned different roles to those three main tribes, those sub-tribes. And one of them had the responsibility for carrying the ark. So what you have here is a man who was not a Levite. He was not ordained by God to take care of this ark. And remember, they weren't supposed to touch the ark anyway. That's why the poles were there, and we learned they were never to take the poles out. So here's a man with the best of intentions, but he was crossing a line that God had not ordained, and he touches it and he dies. Now David's learned his lesson. A little late for Uzzah, but David's learned his lesson. So David's saying, now I remember, only the Levites can do this. And then he goes down and he gathers them together, and he tells each of these major tribes what they're supposed to do. Verse 13, For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord your God broke out against us because we did not consult with Him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of God, and the children of Israel bore the ark of God, the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses has commanded according to the word of the Lord. And David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers and accompanied by the instruments of music and string instruments and harps and cymbals. So the Levites appoint, goes on and down. This is the whole list of who was appointed to lead this worship procession. To lead this worship procession. I want to go back a second. So I'm not going to take the time to read down through all these singers and all. Verse 24, Shebna, Jashad, all the rest of these people. <laughs> and the priests were to blow the trumpets before the ark, and Obadiah and Jehah, the doorkeepers for the ark. 
So David and the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands went to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was that, when, that God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Now stop there a second. I want to go back and read out of Second Sam, Samuel's version of this. And this, what he adds to is this. And so it was when those who bore the ark would go six paces that they sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So with what you see here in First Chronicles, what they don't tell you is they did this every six feet. They would take six steps, stop, and have a worship service. Then they would take six more steps and stop and have a worship all the way. Now you can see why I said God had to strengthen them. All the way. Oh, there's an interest. Oh, yes. You know, when God shows up and God's presence is there, God's not limited by time. In revivals and things that have happened by the, in the past, they haven't gone for an hour or two hours. Sometimes they've gone all day and all night. But you see, when God's there, Nobody cares how t- what time it is. When God's there, everybody's strong. Remember Moses was 40 days in his presence and didn't bother to eat or drink? And his life was sustained. He was more alive when he came down than when he went up. See, we think so naturally. Yeah, but if we don't do this, we can't get to the, the restaurant, and we can't do this, and I can't get... But see, when God's presence is there, all, all your needs are taken care of and satisfied. So God strengthened them. Because it would take strength to go six steps. It would just not to lose your patience. How much farther we have to go? How much farther? Anybody know how far it is to Jerusalem? They didn't care. They were full of joy because God's presence was coming back to their midst. All right. We're back in First Chronicles 15. Verse 27. And David was clothed with a robe of fine linen as were all the Levites who bore the ark. And David wore a linen ephod. Now, that may not mean much to you, but you've got to remember, he's the king. What they wore in those days, as fussy as we can be about what we wear, what they wore in those days signified their role, their authority, and who they were. And David, as king, had the most beautiful robes, had the most luxurious robes. So what David has done as king, as he has taken off his kingly robe and he's wearing just a white, basically he's wearing a white ephod, which was a, a tunic, and white breeches. He's dressed like the priests. And thus all of Israel, verse 28, brought, brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was shouting with the sound of a horn, with trumpets and cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant came to the city. Now, what this doesn't say, what it does say in, in 2 Samuel, is David was dancing before the Lord. And the word dancing means to twirl around. He wasn't just doing, you know, the charismatic hop. 
he was twirling around and singing and his, his, his ephod was spinning around because that's the way they would dance. They would twirl around like this and he was, I mean, he was just, he was just all the joy that was coming out of him because the ark of the presence of God was coming to its rightful place. It was coming to him. It was coming to the city of David to be set up there. And the joy was so exuberant in them, he couldn't control himself. But there's always some religious person. Verse 29, It happened as the Ark of the Covenant of David came to the city of David that Michael, Saul's daughter, who was David's, one of David's wives, looked through the window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. I'm going to go back and read. Here's what happens. Now as the ark... This is in 2 Samuel 6, verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window and saw the king leaping and whirling before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected. This is not the tabernacle we've studied. This is a tent that he's set up for this. And David erected it, and there David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David finished offering these burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed among the people a whole multitude of Israel, both the men and the women, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. David's done well, hasn't he? Now he goes home. He returned home to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious, this is the sarcasm in her voice, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of the servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father. She she was concerned with what the people would think. She was concerned with, not with his reputation, her reputation as his wife. What are the people going to think? You acted shamelessly. And David said, I wasn't dancing in front of them. I was dancing before the Lord, who, by the way, took the kingdom away from your father and gave it to me. I was dancing before him. See, he was worshiping his father. And all the house to appoint the ruler of the people of Israel. Therefore, I will play the music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified from this. In other words, girl, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and I will be humbled in my own sight. But as for the maid servants of whom you've spoken by them, I will be held in honor. And Michael, the son of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Back in First Chronicles verse 16, chapter 16, verse 37, tells us that David appointed Asaph over the Ark of the Covenant to minister before the Ark regularly, and every day's work was required. Go over to chapter 22.
Back in Samuel, I don't want to turn back there, but back in, I guess, chapter 7, David looks at all this now. The ark settled there. David's looking at what's been accomplished. And he looks at his house. He's living in a beautiful palace. He has other houses. And he looks out. I don't know, maybe he's looking out of the window of his nice, comfortable palace with his wives and everything. And he looks out and he sees this tent. And God's ark is in the tent. And David says to the prophet Nathan, This isn't right. It's not right that I should dwell in this nice house and God dwells in a tent. And Nathan says to him, Do what's in your heart to do. But that night, God spoke to Nathan and said, No, you go tell David that I have not called him to build a house for me. It's interesting what God says. He says, I want to establish his house first. And then God goes on to explain to him, you're not going to build a house for me, but your son will, because there's blood on your hands. You conquered all these kingdoms, which was what God, he was called to do, but there's blood on your hands, and therefore you can't build a house for me. God wasn't mad at him. But he said, I've chosen your son to build a house for me. So David's heart is not, well, hey, it's not my responsibility now. It's Saul, my son Solomon's responsibility. So I'm just going to go, you know, enjoy the rest of my life. No, what we see happen is, look in chapter 22, 1 Chronicles 22. David said, this is the house of the Lord God and this altar of the burnt offering. And David commanded to gather aliens from the land. And David starts collecting resources to build it. So, and not only that, he gives of his own money more than anybody else to build this temple, which is what we're going to begin to look at next week. And the king of Sidon and Tyre sent down wood to David. Verse 5. Chapter 22, verse 5. David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for God, for the Lord, must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. And now I've made preparations for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have had great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I shall give him peace and quietness to Israel in his days. And he shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, this is David, may the Lord be with you. And may, oh, David talking to his son Solomon. And may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God. He has said to you, Only may the Lord God give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord God charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage and do not fear or be dismayed. 
For I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, a bronze and, 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 on, and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant I have prepared timber and stone also that you may add to them. Moreover, there are workers with you in abundance and workmen and skilled stone cutters, men of every skillful work, and all of gold and silver and bronze and iron. There's no limit. Arise and begin working that the Lord may be with you. And David commanded the leaders of all Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is it not the Lord your God with you? Has he not given you rest on every side? Has he given the inhabitants of the land to be my, uh, to, to subdue before the Lord, before his people? Now set your heart with your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore rise and build a sanctuary of the Lord your God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. What have we learned today? I really felt it was important. This is a lot of teaching today, and just kind of, you know, it's not rah-rah, it's, you know, it's not teary, it's not... But it's important background to understand because there was a gap in time between the, the anointing of the ark and the presence of God. And we've seen that when they took the presence of God lightly and stopped seeking God with their heart, that God's presence was removed. And they didn't even know it because they were more confident in the ark that God had given them than in a relationship with the God of the ark. And we saw they got in trouble with that. We saw that when they brought it out, brought it out into battle, trusting in the ark, that the ark had no power for them. But isn't it interesting that the ark that had no power for them, when the Philistines brought it into their camp, it destroyed their idol of Dagon and it brought a plague upon them. And when it came back into the hands of the Israelites, when it was not handled correctly, there was still judgment that came. And then David got angry and decided, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. He went and powdered it. And finally, when he realized what had happened, he goes the proper way to bring it back. And so we see a beginning of a restoration. One of the lessons I learned from David is what's God's own testimony about King David. He said, he was a man after my heart. The one thing about King David, he made mistakes, and there's some mistakes we didn't get into that he made with Bathsheba and Uriah and some other things he did wrong. At one point he calls for a census of the people that God didn't tell him to do. And it brings a plague out. And he has to make a sacrifice to still the plague. So David was not a perfect man by any means. But the one thing about David that God's testimony was about him was he was a man after my heart. What, God, what David sought was God's heart. And so even when he made the mistakes, God's presence came back into this place. But the children of Israel... Under the judges, the children of Israel, after Joshua died and the ark had been put away, they stopped seeking God's heart and they started seeking the things that God did for them. And they began to not have a leader, but they did what was right in their own sight. And so God's presence gradually withdrew to the point that he didn't speak anymore. Very seldom did he speak. And a man, Samuel, boy Samuel, is brought on the scene to grow up He's really, he's the last of the judges. And he begins to exercise leadership until a king is appointed. It was not God's will for them to have a human king. It was God's will that he be their king. But they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to blend in with the other nations and look like everybody else and have a king. And God warned them. He says, if you have a king, he says, I'm going to give you a king, but I'm going to tell you what's going to cost you. He's going to collect taxes from you. 
because he's going to need to build things I wouldn't need to build if I were your king. He's going to take your daughters and your sons to serve in his armies. He's going to take your daughters and your sons to serve him in his castle and in all the things he's going to build. And you're, and you're, going, to, you're going to be oppressed because you have a king. But if that's what you want, I'm going to give you what you want. See, sometimes God will give you what you want, even though it's not his best. So if you insist on something long enough, God may just give it to you. So you need to know what God's will is. But then David comes on the scene. A man after God's heart. It's interesting because God gave to his son Solomon more wisdom than he gave to David. Because God's testimony about Solomon is God said about him. He's the wisest man that's ever lived, before and after. And yet with all of Solomon's wisdom, he ended up backsliding. With what we're going to see next week with God's presence in the temple, Solomon backslides. And I believe the difference is this. David was after God's heart Solomon was after God's wisdom. God's a God of relationship. Now God offered to, Saul, Samuel, uh, to Solomon at the beginning, He said, what do you want? You're king, what do you want? And Solomon's heart was right in the beginning. He said, who am I to be king of Israel? I'm ill-equipped to be king of Israel. So what I ask for you is wisdom. I need your wisdom to lead your people. And God says, you could have asked me for riches. You could have asked me for power. You could have asked me for reputation. But you asked me for wisdom to take care of my people. Because you did that, I'm going to give you the wisdom that you asked. But I'm also going to give you the riches and the power and the prestige you could have asked for that you didn't ask for. So Solomon started out right. But he eventually goes off track because he violates God's requirements because he starts multiplying wives. Now that's insane to begin with. <laughs> but they would do that, I guess, back then. I mean, when he's got what, 700 wives and 300 concubines or the other way around? <laughs> and they begin to be his downfall. So one of the lessons of this is, this is, all comes back to this. David sought God's heart. David met God out in, the f out in the fields taking care of sheep. And in that process, David developed a relationship with his God. Because he's the one that pens that 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. David developed a relationship with him out of his heart. That even when he became king, and even many made mistakes, kept him in good stead. And it was out of the desire of David's heart that David said, I want to build my God deserves to have something that's representative of His glory to dwell in. God didn't say no. He just said, you're not the one to do it. You're not the one to do it. But even then, David didn't hold back. He said, all right, whatever I got, I want to pour into this so that when my son builds it, it's going to be the most magnificent thing ever built. Not as a testimony to me, not as a testimony to my son, but as a testimony that's appropriate for the glory of the God, of my, my God, my Father who will dwell in that place. So that's what we're going to begin to look at next week. We're looking at the desire of God to be among His people. And we're seeing what determines how well God can be among His people is the attitude of His people towards the God that wants to be among them. When they were open under Moses, God came down to dwell among them. But when they took Him for granted, and when they began to look at the things of the world and begin to trust in the, other, in, in the relics and not in the God, 
God had to withdraw because they weren't after the relationship. They weren't worshiping Him. They were worshiping the things of Him. And they eventually had to learn the lesson that they lost the thing they treasured. But David is the one that restored it because of his desire of his heart. Once the kingdom was settled and established, the first thing David wanted to do was to go bring it back to himself. And that's what God is wooing us to do. To begin to have a heart and desire to bring God back into our lives in that way. To bring, begin to desire His presence. And when we come together to experience the presence of God. They didn't have to say, now look, we're going to have four songs and you've got to stand on your hands and clap your hands. When they're bringing the ark back, what did they do? They were dancing and they were singing and they were praising God. They weren't concerned what anybody thought or how it looked. Only the religious person was. They weren't concerned with what it looked like because David's words were, I wasn't dancing before them. I was dancing before my God who gave all of this to me. His eyes weren't on the people. His eyes weren't on what it meant. His eyes were only on the God. And he couldn't hold himself back. That's what God desires. That's what he longs for. Let's pray. Father, as we've studied your word this morning and looked through the story in your word of the travels of the ark, may we leave here today, Lord, with a better understanding of you and of what you desire and what you long for. Father, the things that I believe you want to do here, we can't make happen. And there's a way that you want to do things. And I believe that you're preparing our hearts and you're preparing us. So I pray, Lord, as we end this morning, that we, you take the word that we've heard, whatever it is that each of us have heard this morning. And by your Spirit, you begin to quicken that in us. You begin to create in us a desire, a hunger, a thirst for you. That we might learn how to come and be open and desire you in such a way that you can pour yourself out as you did in the days of old. Father, if you did that in the days of old, how much more do you want to do that with your children? For us, you sent your son to die, that we might be made sons and daughters of the living God. For us, you've removed the veil, that there is nothing that stands between us and your presence other than our own hearts. Father, may you remove the veil that's in our hearts that separates us from you. And for that, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name.